this movie takes everything that we think we're such smart spectators that we know that, oh, well, she's dead. Well, he's dead. Well, that's not going to work out. And we're wrong. Honestly, everything looked like a tampon ad. Putting all this Doors music <laughs> in the Fright Club podcast. We had the Doors last, well, a couple of times ago. Yeah, yep. uh, And they're back. It's the Doors and Five to One. Is that the name of the song, right? Five to One? One to Five? Because that's the only time they yeah. mention it in the entire song. Because most people think of it as, uh, you know, because then he says, no one, no one here gets out alive. alive. But that's yeah. not the name of the song. Yeah, as you can tell, I'm not a Doors aficionado, <laughs> as we talked about. But it it does fit. Just like the last time it was, this is the end, because we were talking right. about the la- the endings. Right, and we're back talking about endings for part two, and yeah, we're counting down five to one. And if you like some of these jams that you hear on the Fright Club podcast, well, we finally have a Fright Club playlist on Spotify. I'm pretty sure that you are only focusing on the songs you've chosen. What? <laughs> we should be all except these last two. <laughs> We'll make more Fright Club podcasts, but we have the first one up there. You can find it at Fright Club Hits to keep your summer frightful with the Fright Club Spotify playlist. So check it out. All right, welcome. If we didn't say, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com. This is the Fright Club podcast. Thank you for checking it out. And thank you to everybody that came out last time to Fright Club Live at the Gateway Film Center. We had a bunch of fun watching Severance. You know what I was really surprised by? Only one person there had already seen this movie. Right. It was great. When you listen to the podcast, you can hear us t- take the, the poll. All right, who's seen this? There right. was only one no, person. No, only John. Ooh, and and nice. he saw it because because Severance, as you mentioned, is the was the very first Fright Club yeah, uh, we ever did. Years ago, before yeah. we had the podcast. And John was there, of course. Yep. Uh, and everybody for everybody else, it was a yeah. new experience. And I really think everybody loved it. I do, too. And it's easy to see why. It's a lot of fun, and we talked about workplace horror. And Richard, who was a uh, Fright Clubber there, he uh, we left off the Belco experiment, which we don't care for, but he does. And we also left off Bloodsucking Bastards. Actually, to be, to be fair, I didn't so much leave them off the list as I made fun of them as we walked <laughs> through our list. So but, I think that's really where he took issue, because right. he but likes hey, both of those movies. both, that's great. That's right. That's great. So, yeah, thank you for everybody coming out, and we look forward to the next Fright Club Live. It's going to be June 13th. We'll be right back at the Gateway Film Center. High Street, Columbus, Ohio. We're going to screen the Snowtown Murders and talk about realism in horror. It is such, such a great movie. Really unnerving. Uh, Just one of those great Aussie gems. Yeah, definitely. So uh, if you can join us, we would love to have you. Now, one of the fun things, we just started last week. We started throwing out a question on social media and looking for the best answer to win a T-shirt. So we started out, since we're talking about endings here, we threw out the question last week. What is the movie, the horror movie, you would remake the ending of if if you could? And we got well, we got a little got a little debate going back and forth. We did. We got some good <laughs> answers, but but one of my favorite things about Freight Clever's D Zach, Old Man Spencer, and Monty, besides their Twitter names, which are hilarious, is how colorfully they beat each other up on social media. <laughs> With love. <laughs> so, well, uh, we, we're not, you and I, we don't really get behind Monty's answer, which was the Babadook right. uh, movie that we both think he the ending is brilliant. the ending, and he, give him credit, though. He knew what was coming. He did. Yeah. He clearly did. And so we, we want to thank him for sort, sort of opening himself up to that kind of public thrashing. <laughs> and also we want to thank d and Old Man Spencer for making such fun mockery and of all, him. Yeah. But, but... 
Monty, you win. Yeah, Monty gets the T-shirt. We'll set you up with that. And thanks for all the responses. That was a lot of fun. We'll work on another question. We'll throw it out on social media next week. All right, so, yeah, we're counting down 5 to 1. The Doors sang about. It's part two of our favorite horror movie endings, and we welcome back our great guest from the last time. Brought so much good stuff. I know he's going to do it again. S.A. Bradley from the Hellbent for Horror podcast is back. We're going to pick right up where we left off last time with the top five, both of our top fives, and S.A.'s fifth favorite horror movie ending, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. You're telling me you never killed anybody before? I ain't saying that. Open your eyes, Otis. Look at the world. It's either you or them. You know what I mean. It's it's one of those movies that when I tell people uh, or I ask people what they think of it, they kind of get this weird look on their face. <laughs> I think uh, for the most part, people appreciate it for what it has done, the amount of impact that it has, uh, the mood that it creates, the way that it truly uh, ex- exploits your expectations to create a really nasty ending. But not many people can say that they absolutely love it. You don't see a lot of you know Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer T-shirts, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume they're out there. Uh, I, and I really respect the movie, but it is one of those movies. It's funny. My wife can't, I can't play the movie if she's in the house. I've had her asleep. And the very beginning of that movie, when the music comes on, you hear the screams, she will be in her bed going, uh, yeah, uh, and I have to turn it off. <laughs> There's something just really creepy about this damn movie. And it's loosely based on uh, serial killer Henry Lee Lucas and uh, his life, uh, ty- uh, his real life partner, Otis Toole. And this movie was actually made years before 1986. Uh, it took quite a while. It was on the shelf for a while. Uh, and it was finally brought out by, I think, MPI video. So it had a very, very spotty release. I think the first time it showed was like in Italy or something like that. And it became this movie that really, it's the flashpoint for most of the serial killer stuff that you'll see now. Of course, much more popularized in the mainstream by Silence of the Lands. But this was the movie that kind of went from where you had the stylized serial killers of, say, Anthony Perkins in Psycho to something that was real gritty, grimy, and scary. What I love about if love is the right word to use for Henry, a portrait of a serial killer, is how it's really a portrait of a machine. This is a shark. This is something that is built to do what it does. And where this movie subverts our expectations is that uh, it's the same kind of idea that when you hear people say, still waters run deep. You have someone who's silent and you put all of your thoughts of what that person is all about on them because they're just kind of like this reflective mirror. They're giving you nothing. And that's pretty much what Henry is. Henry's face doesn't change much. He doesn't seem particularly evil. I mean, there's this thing where his socks are always showing because his pants are just a little bit too short. He seems kind of bumbling in a way. He seems very incredibly average. And yet you have Michael Rooker's face on that. So at a moment, he can go from having a banal stare to a very disturbing stare and nothing has changed. Maybe the tone of his voice has changed a little bit. So basically we're watching this person go through their life in Chicago 
with their friend as he is slowly killing people as an exterminator. And uh, he is actually a bug exterminator at one point. Uh, he follows people home uh, from malls. And uh, once he is discovered to be this by his friend, we learn his code of morals, if you want to call him that. Basically, how you stay alive doing this. And I love in this movie where you have Otis Toole, who is just a sadist, a horrible sadist who ends up getting a taste for murder and an actual machine, a shark that is made for it. I believe that sooner or later, uh, no matter what Otis did, he was going to end up being killed by Henry because Henry is going to realize that this guy is not made for traveling. Mm -hmm. This guy is too obvious. But the thing about Henry is that he can just be anywhere and float along like a leaf on still water and then all of a sudden attack. And where this movie gets its shock ending is that you are taking in this information. You hear about how he beat his mother and and her boyfriend to death of a base baseball bat. And there's this wonderful sequence where he's talking to uh, the sister of Otis, who's visiting, uh, running away from an abusive husband. And uh, she asks him, I heard that you killed your mom. And he's like, yeah, I killed my mom. And he starts talking about the murder. And he says something about her being shot, that he shot her. And she goes, wait, you said it was a bat. He goes, oh, yeah, I get confused. And you realize he has so many different murders in Mm -hmm. his head that he can't even keep in mind. And his mother, he gets his mother wrong. And that's a real big sign for how we are going to give him emotions that he doesn't have. So the very end is a gut punch to us because we are watching him come to the rescue of this woman. And we think maybe he has feelings for her. And as her abusive brother, Otis, decides to molest her, he finally kills Otis and saws him up and puts him in suitcases. And they decide it's time to run. So he runs with this girl, Becky, and they're in a hotel. And uh, he's in the bathroom and he's looking in the mirror and he has this really dead face. And she says, I love you. And he says, yeah, I think I love you too. And the end of the movie is him driving down the road on the freeway. He pulls to the side, opens up the trunk and puts a bloody suitcase down. That is Becky's suitcase. And we realize she is in that suitcase that he has disemboweled her and put her in there because she's just another piece of baggage that he needs to let go of. He's never had the emotions that we feel. But because we've watched so many movies and we've learned so much about his personality, we think maybe there's a spark of humanity. And that's what makes that movie so impactful, is that it leads us into the thing of he's rescued her, right? But really, it's just all about his preservation. He just needs to continue to float along. And maybe he does love her. And that's about as good as he can do. And that makes that movie so effective, so creepy, and uh, basically better than any of the serial killer movies that came after it. It, it is such a gut punch. And when, she, when he says that, oh, I, I think, I guess I love you too. You're like, oh boy. And when you think about how it would have ruined the movie to turn it the hmm. other way. Think right. about it. You know, it would have just, no, 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 no. Even as, as much of a gut punch as it is, it ha- that's the ending it has to have. Right. And you want the movie to be ruined. That's what's interesting. While you're watching it, oh, of course. you really care for Becky. Mm-hmm. You want yeah. her to live. Yeah, she's the only <laughs> decent character in the film. You know, I think you're right. I think the thing that makes this movie so remarkable is the blank slate of of Michael Rooker's performance because you have to... Even every time the evidence in front of you says he's not like me, 
the, the more he doesn't say anything, the more you automatically fill his character with something that seems normal so that they can constantly pull the rug out from under you. That and just the detached non-judgmental point of view of the camera these are the things that that work right. together to make this movie so profoundly chilling yeah is it the kuleshov effect i think it was called the kuleshov effect where uh, back in the silent days uh the editing experiment was just taking a picture of a, a guy with a blank expression on his face and then a picture of a baby crying and then a boiling pot of water and a grave and they edited them together in different sequences with just straight on shots and asked people what those what the movie meant and they'd be like oh well the guy is upset because his baby is hungry he has no money and his wife died and then someone else they'd switch them around have the uh, tombstone first shots are the same but we bring all of the story to it when it's a blank slate like that and I think that they did a fantastic job of that with Henry no doubt about it and that is uh, essays number five on best horror movie endings moving up to our number five one from 2011 we've talked about this one a few times on the podcast Mm -hmm. Almost a year after a botched job, a hitman takes a new assignment with the promise of a big payoff for three killings. What starts off as an easy task soon unravels, sending the killer into the heart of darkness. Kill list. There are so many things about this movie that are just, it's another weird one. I mean, it's just weird, and it keeps you constantly on your toes. You think you know what you're watching. In fact, you probably don't think for a long time that you're watching a horror film. It just looks like sort of a gritty British crime drama until the first person says, thank you. And then you're like, I don't have any idea what I'm watching right now. Yeah, I I know. I didn't didn't consider it a horror film until that moment. And then when he says that weird thank you, I'm like... Oh boy, <laughs> what, what that's that's a, a wrong turn somewhere, and it yeah, and how it goes down this totally different path to that ending that is weirdly foreshadowed. If you remember early on, Jay and and uh, they're fighting in the garden with those toy swords, you know, and that mm-hmm. is a weird foreshadowing of the fight they have with real knives and and with the masks on at the end in some sort of. It's kind of Wicker Man-esque, I guess, with yes. these these pagan masks and things. And, and also, in a strange way, it's, it's yeah, it reminded me of a Serbian film uh, Ooh, about yeah. the the identity of who is in the other mask and everything, which is just makes me feel dirty just talking about it. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's such a, a striking ending because when the, the pagans, I guess, uh, the older ones, you know, take off their masks and they have such a a satisfied look, a smiling look, like this is what we all knew, this is where it was going to come to, and look, you've done it, and we're, we're clapping, we're applauding, we're so proud. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's chilling. Oh, God. I'm so glad that you brought up Robin Hardy's uh, Wicker Man, because that's exactly the, the thing that I thought of with the end of this film, because it's almost as if they don't think they've done anything wrong. There hasn't been a murder. Right. This is just a religious ceremony. Yeah. And, and that is so terrifying to me. And this is another movie that I consider very literary. It isn't a book, I don't think. But at the same point, it feels bookish. It has that chapter feel. It has a road doll on acid kind of feel to it. <laughs> and it is so insanely creepy. And I love that you. I had it on my list as well uh, because it's one that I think is uh, underrated. Uh, people are like, well, that was kind of weird. And I'm like, watch it again. Yeah. See how early on they start giving you clues. And there are several movies on my list that I love the end because there are puzzle pieces that basically tell you, dummy, this is, of course, how it was going to end. But it's still a shock because the artistry of the storytelling is so good. 
All right, so Kill List, not only our number five, but it's SA's number three. And as we get closer to the top here, we start getting into a little overlap, but that is good because these are good movies. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit and move up to our number four favorite horror movie ending, which is actually SA, it's your number one, so that you know yes. it's a great one. From 2007, a freak storm unleashes a species of bloodthirsty creatures on a small town where a small band of citizens hole up in a supermarket and fight for their lives. It's the mist. So, yeah, The Mist uh, is my number one, and I really battle between that and my number two because the number two is very profound for me as well. But I really can't ignore the amount of balls that it took to create uh, The Mist and go down the path that they do in the time period that we're in. The story was long before 9-11, but there is this whole feeling of like a terrorist attack, the military, can we trust what's going on through this film and a very despairing end to the film uh, that I just could not ignore. The fact that uh, that uh, Frank Darabont decided to go uh, to such levels and be honest with the story, be true to the story, mm -hmm. to give the ending that was necessary, I applauded it highly. So what we end up having is Lovecraft on acid. We have this huge Lovecraftian nightmare of things coming out of uh, the mist that uh, can only exist in nightmares, that everything about them is poisonous, venomous, and nasty. And this movie is ruthless. This movie does not allow characters to be spared just because we like them. There are people who we just start to like, or we don't even know, who are taken out in moments. We have characters who we're sure are doomed that are not doomed. And we find that out in the spoiler alert ending. But we have a character that we follow uh, who is a writer and his son who are basically trapped inside of uh, this supermarket. And we have the uh, kind of thing that Rod Serling used to do with uh, bomb shelters and things. I forget uh, the name of it, uh, but it's a, a story about how there may or may not have been a bomb that goes off and good friends now are enemies and you will let your, your neighbors die because it's your survival or theirs. And we start having that happen. And the things that are being seen are so out of the ordinary, supernatural and transcendent that it becomes biblical for people. Uh, people who were not religious suddenly become religious. You have factions that happen inside of this grocery store. The thing is, finally, people have to leave this grocery store, right? So this is where the end comes in. We have a few survivors that are left. We have the father and son team, and we have a gun that has, I think, four bullets left in it, and they're driving on. And the whole idea is that we stay in this grocery store, we may die or we will die. But if we go out on this road, we may survive. There are people who stay in the grocery store and say, no, if we stay here, the military will come and save us. Our hero says, no, we need to get out of here. So we see him driving and the movie lets us go to the very end of the gas that's in the truck with these people still alive. And the father has to kill everybody 
or let them be devoured by whatever is outside of this car. It seems like it's the end of the world. It seems that there is no choice. He is surrounded by this mist. He has these bullets. He kills the people in the back seat, and then he kills his son, and then he is screaming and crying, taking the dry-locked, bulletless gun and putting it in his mouth, trying to shoot himself over and over and over again. He has to live with the death of his child, and he gets out of the truck, and the mist starts to rise, and the military is there, and they are burning down. They have somehow beaten back this thing, and he has killed his kid. And we see someone who we thought was foolish and was surely dead early on in the movie, taking their child back to uh, the house, and that person is alive. And you get this horrible feeling that all is lost that our main character did what we thought narratively made sense. And it, it ended up being the death of his child. But we had no idea, just like he had no idea that it would end this way. And it is such a gut punch. And it is so profound. And it is everything that horror is supposed to be. Yeah, and it's, we mentioned in the part one of this podcast that we're not fans, particular fans of Stephen King's endings of his book. And here's another, <laughs> here's another example of that, because the ending here that Frank Darabont came up with is so much better it's so much better i think even stephen king admitted that this one he actually endorsed because it's so much of a better ending yeah it absolutely is and and you talk about you mentioned you see when the mist lifts you see a character a woman who is in the store early in the film and asking them all to walk her home because she's left her son Mm -hmm. at home and nobody will and you you know you're in the position where you you don't like her you're like are you no, who would do this? You're going to die. Right. Your son is dead already because you left him there. What's going on with you? And when you see her there at the end, you realize that you've been taken on a journey in the Thomas Jane as the writer, in his perspective, where you believe he's made all the right decisions because he's made all the decisions that you would have made and every single one was wrong. Every right. choice he made was wrong. And now the worst thing that a human could imagine, he, he killed his own child and now it's fine. The world is fine. He's fine. Everybody would be fine. But now it, it's worse than if he had died himself. He's so, going to have to live with it. Yes. And I guess even to even pile that on even more, originally Darabont wanted to film a second truck to come past him that had most of the people from the supermarket in it to just reinforce yeah. the idea that you should have never left. Uh, but yeah. by then, I think uh, the most of I guess most of the actors had had gone on and, and they couldn't uh, film it. But that would have been just another one piling on a little bit more as he's screaming at the end there, realizing what oh, he's done. Yeah. But yeah, it's oh, such it's... it's such a perfect ending. Yeah, it's it's absolutely powerful. And uh, I think it's great because when we're watching movies like this, we always talk about the dumb characters, right? We're always like, oh, horror movies. I hate horror movies because there's always a dumb guy. Why would he go into that cave? Well, it's kind of like everything that you think you know, like you think you would survive a natural disaster. Well, certainly I wouldn't go in the elevator. You might. <laughs> you might find yeah. that when reality hits, when disaster actually hits, you're not nearly as prepared as you think. And this movie takes everything that we think we're such smart spectators that we know that, oh, well, she's dead. Well, he's dead. Well, that's not going to work out. And we're wrong. At the end, we are also laid bare, just like the character. Yeah, so true. And that's uh, The Mist, our number four, and essays number one on our favorite horror movie endings, which takes us up to our number three, another favorite of the Fright Club, back to 1976 and the shock ending of Carrie. Ah! 
you know, it's another one of those sort of slasher era trick endings, but it was so incredibly powerful and it was not what you expected because it really wasn't like the rest of the film. It really wasn't, except that, you know, in the uh, in the early part of the film, every time there is so much of this, this sort of cheesecloth, fuzzy way of, of <laughs> ph- photographing everything that honestly... Everything looked like a tampon ad. Everything did. And it looked like, and, you know, and, and part of it, obviously, uh, reasonably so. But that's what everything, and then he, he gets away from that. How did you they know? miss that product tie-in? <laughs> Come on. Right. <laughs> but De Palma gets away from that as the movie wears on and as, as she she comes sort of to know her powers better. And then, of course, when you get to the, the prom and there's so much split screen and there's so much high drama and it's, it's definitely lost all of the luster of the film before she's kind of lost her innocence. But then that comes back, right? All of that that sort of sweet and beautiful and filtered because now we're in Sue Snell. Beautiful, lovely right. Sue Snell. P.S. Sue Snell, this is all your fucking fault. This is all <laughs> your fault. Right. But she's so sorry, and she's such a good person, and so she's going to bring flowers, because only she really still loves and forgives Carrie, and then, of course, she's paid. She's repaid once again for loving Carrie White, and then then also, of course, that it's not reality. Reality is everything ugly that happened, and that Sue Snell is the only person who has survived it, and that she's not going to be okay, as the dream sequence suggested, which is probably why Carrie's hand came out to grab her. It's like, you don't get... To come away of the from this unscathed, you know, and so uh, yeah, I just think first of all, it's scary it, when you watch it the first time. You're like, damn! And then um, just after that, I think that it is again, as, as with all of the rest of these, it's the it's the perfect cinematic capper to the brilliant film that you've just watched. Yeah, and it was one where Sissy Spacek, I guess, she insisted on being the hand. They, she was the one that got buried and, and laid under there for hours, and, and uh, apparently she kept just every so often just would say, um, are we ready yet? <laughs> and eventually they finally did it. But, yeah, she insisted on being the hand. And, you know, we talked about uh, the, a few weeks ago when we talked about Carrie uh, reminded that um, it was actually Amy Irving's real mother plays her mother in the film. And in that when she wakes up from that dream, I guess when they were filming it, her outburst, so startled her own real mother that she actually, if you listen, she actually calls her Amy instead of mm. Snow. When she there's big, you know, there's music and everything, but yeah, she actually was taken aback by how startled she was coming out of that. But that was a big shock scare, you know, a real jump scare with that with that hand. Oh yeah, I think that might have been. Uh, uh, well, I th- I know that Friday the Thirteenth, Sean Cunningham <laughs> has uh, Brian De Palma to thank uh, right, for right. Uh, doing that. Uh, I think many films ended up having that capper end where you think that the uh, everything has gone very nice, and all of a sudden you have this big explosion of violence or craziness that happens. And I think De Palma uh, was uh, one of the progenitors of that, and easily did it the best <laughs> for the early times. I thought of that because he doesn't punctuate it with music until after the hand comes right, out. Right. And I think that's the thing that everybody gets wrong. They usually yep. hit on the the thing where it's coming up. That hand just moving the rock and ending up on her arm it was just so freaking frightening. And I think it's well earned in the film. Uh, it's a very dazzling film visually. And I think you're right about the gauze, which I think is uh, his movie obsession. The gauze never comes off. <laughs> I think that movie is just constantly in a haze. But 
but uh, that look of going into harsh reality and then into harsh fantasy where they have the prom dance and you have this constant spinning that's going on. Uh, I mean, there's such violence in that film for a movie that wasn't violent and actually has some silliness to it. Uh, by the time you get to that end, you're kind of exhausted. So when that arm comes out, that hand comes out, it really has uh, a punch to it. And I, I think that's why I really still appreciate De Palma's work so much. And that is our number three favorite horror movie endings, Carrie. We already talked about uh, S.A.'s number three a little bit ago, and that was Kill List. So we'll move right on up to number two. Your number two, S.A. What you? Oh, this is one very, very famous ending for your number two. It's a married couple grieving the recent death of their young daughter in Venice when they encounter two elderly sisters, one of whom is psychic and brings a warning from beyond. Don't look now. I won't hurt you. Come on. Don't Look Now from 1973, Nicholas Rogue. And this movie, uh, if anybody who listens to my show knows, this is uh, what I consider my first kiss. This is the movie that got me into horror, uh, galvanized me, terrorized me, gave me nightmares uh, because I watched it way too young. I was, I think, eight years old or something like that when I ended up seeing it. And uh, that begin. it's another movie where it's the beginning and the end. Uh, I think the last time that I was on, we talked about uh, Dawn of the Dead, where the the remake of Dawn of the Dead, yeah. where the first five, ten minutes is amazing and the last five, yep. ten minutes is amazing. And the same thing happens at Don't Look Now. And Don't Look Now, it's part of a puzzle. So the very beginning of the movie is the death of a child that sets everything into play. And it's one of the most expressionistic deaths ever in film. And what I love about Nicholas Roque and this film in specific is that it is a puzzle being created for you. The resolution comes with one puzzle piece at the end, and then you get to pull back and see the entire picture of what you've been seeing. So the story basically has the mother and uh, and father, the husband and wife, uh, meet two elderly women who one of them says uh, is a clairvoyant, and she realizes that the daughter is still with them. And the one woman who once answers, the wife, uh, is like, I need to know more. The husband is like, forget it. I don't want to know anything about this. But the problem is he's the one having premonitions. They're talking about premonitions, but he's really the one who is seeing things. He's denying the fact of what's going on. And we continue to see all these very odd visual images of him seeing his wife and these two sisters on a gondola that is a funeral gondola. And they're all dressed in black and he tries to get around there. This movie uses Venice kind of like how we talked about the Overlook uh, and how at one point I talked about the Danvers Mental Hospital for Session 9 as a character. And it is not the Venice that you see in postcards. There are like one or two shots of the Grand Canal. The rest of it is a maze, it is the hedge maze, the overlook. You have this spot where he hears a sound and it takes forever to go across a bridge. There are murders that are happening inside of Venice. We don't know. Are these connected to what's going on? Is he seeing his dead daughter? He continues to see this red raincoated person that he saw in a slide that wasn't even in Venice, I think. 
uh, uh, walking around the, the canals at the end. And so we have this thing where suddenly, even though he's been denying it all the way through, he feels that he's truly found his daughter. And we see what seems to be a real person, a real rain-coated, small, tiny figure that's going through the canal system, and he's chasing it bridge after bridge. And he finally finds this character inside of, uh, I think, the upstairs of an abandoned church. And the person, uh, this character, this rain-coated person, is in a corner, huddled, face to the wall, back to him. And he comes over and he says, Christina, which is his daughter's name. And he taps this, this uh, figure on the, on the back and it turns and it's this grotesque looking elderly dwarf who just nods. Nope. And has a switch, uh, not a switchblade, a, uh, a razor blade in her hand, a straight razor and hits him in the neck and slashes his throat and he falls over and the blood is squirting out of him. And it is in the, uh, the same symbol, uh, that same texture of how that slide burst apart in the very beginning of the movie. And we start to see all the puzzle pieces coming together that he has seen his own death in Venice. He is looking through the past and the present and the future. And I think in the very beginning of the book, he's reading, or in the very beginning of the movie, he's reading a book that's called Beyond the Fragile Geometry of Space. And this is all about the shift of perception of time. And he has basically seen his own death, and he did not know that all these warning signs were harbingers to keep him away. Instead, he thought it was to draw him to his daughter. Ironically, of course, since she's dead, it is drawing him to his daughter. That's right. And so it's really, really creepy. And what I love about it is that it's what I call horrible beautiful. It is something that is grisly and sad, and yet there is this upbeat music. It is shot so beautifully. There is almost this exhalation of joy, even though he's dying. And uh, there's this weird sound design of bells going off and uh, the the sad look of uh, him laying there and his voice going, Christina, over and over again, echoing and this swelling mu- music by Pino Donaggio. And it's just like beautiful. It's art and it's scary and it's sad. And I think it's uh, one of the best endings for a film because the movie will make no sense until that end. And once you see that end, everything falls into place. And then it becomes something that you have to watch again. It's funny. There's a lot about that movie that I think is really beautiful. And um, and I, yes. I, I appreciate a film that knows how to treat grief. I think yes. most films do not. And I think the performances, of course, are great. And it's a, it's a beautiful, lovely film. And the way that he plays with the notions of time throughout the movie, I think, are, mm-hmm. are incredibly compelling. And I also feel like there's really no other possible ending because how... The book is written, or excuse me, the film is written itself in a corner in that what he finds at the end has to be the size of a child, but it's not going right. to be. I love everything in this movie except the end. Uh, every time I've oh. seen it, it feels like a cheat to me. I'm like, it's a dwarf in a raincoat. I, and, I, and I know that, you know, it's like for some reason to me, that feels tricky when nothing else in the movie to me feels tricky. Everything else and you go, no, inevitably it is going to lead to this. This is why, you know, and, and then to turn around this gnarled face. Also, I have to admit that I'm not a huge fan of of Italian horror and the ending felt like a, a, a giant uh, horror. Shallow. Uh, yeah, it did. Um, so so as much as I, I do like the movie, I I've, and, and believe me, I understand that the people who listen are going to side with you. This is a hugely, people love this movie and I understand it, but I just... I could never get behind that end. Yeah, I mean, I 
I appreciate it so much, I think, on levels that aren't associated with horror. I, I think mm-hmm. of it more as a as a thriller. I, I I like the way it handles the marriage, those those two characters, and and grief, and the way it, it plays with time and things like that. But I'll be honest, when I think of horror movies, this one doesn't jump to mind uh, right away. I think of it just for me more of a thriller. But I totally understand everybody else's everybody else's take on it. Yeah. You know, and actually, I want to ask you something, George. So he does uh, essay does something on his show. He talks about the first kiss, which is the first horror film that you watch. We know what mine is, right? We was. Um, it was a slumber party. I watched Motel Hell when I was ten, <laughs> and it and it it changed everything. The whole trajectory of my life. Motel Hell did. What? But what was yours, George? Well, the first one that comes to mind, I think, is Halloween. It was the one that I watched in the in the movie theater. Um, although mm-hmm. I suppose we have included on many of our uh, countdowns, we've included Jaws. So I would have to say Jaws then, if you're going to go before mm-hmm. Halloween, but. I remember because Halloween was rated R. I was not old enough. We got in anyway, me and all my friends. And uh, so that was a big moment, you know, not only to get into an R-rated movie, but uh, for a straight up, you know, slasher horror movie, it would probably be Halloween, yeah. I agree with all of those. (laughs) (laughs) Motel hell. uh, Preservatives. (laughs) (laughs) The fritters. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, so don't look now. Yeah, that's a definitely a, an, an iconic ending. And number two on S.A.'s list, which takes us up to number two. And here's some overlap. It's S.A. It's your number four. So we both think highly of this one for good reason. A young woman's quest for revenge against the people who kidnapped and tormented her as a child leads her and a friend, also a victim of child abuse, on a terrifying journey into a living hell. The original from 2008, Martyrs. Have you ever tried to imagine the other world? Everything all right? Well, have you? I'm afraid not. Keep doubting, Etienne. Okay, so obviously that clip I just used there was the American dubbed version. Those voices sound a little off because they are. But actually, since this is an audio thing, it actually lets you hear, you know, you get more insight as to what actually happens at the end. Unless you speak French, because the film is in French. No, I mean this, me using that clip. Cool. <laughs> you know, it's an ending that frustrated a lot of people. I mean, not, not that that many people saw this movie, and if you haven't, you should. Um, mm-hmm. You can tell that it did, because when they did remake it, an English-language version, they, they changed the ending completely to really, I think, deliver more of what, as you're watching it, you wish would happen. But that's not necessarily the best film. And in fact, this case, it is by no means the best film. It's a, it's a pulled punch. I think that the end of the original Martyrs is just nearly perfect because mm-hmm. because it doesn't give you what you want but that doesn't matter because that's not the point of the film and because mademoiselle is just the weirdest most compelling character ever and because after everything that anna endures in this whole movie uh, the point is not that you get off scot-free it really isn't you should this should be a test of endurance for you as well yeah and it's very ambiguous because you have you've you've found this this group led by Mademoiselle that are torturing these people, these women, to try to get that bit of insight, that bit of knowledge, just at the point of death, where they get some sort of, you know, divine message, and they want to be able to glean that knowledge. And so at the very end, when Mademoiselle gets a message, a whispered message, uh, so you don't hear it, of course, and then, as you heard in the little clip there, she says, keep doubting, and kills herself. So that it's so ambiguous because you're left wondering, okay, why is it because the message says that what what they were 
trying to find out is true and she wants to get to that afterlife right away? Or is it all been a lie and now she has to live with the fact that they've been torturing these people for nothing and kills herself? Or is it for some other reason? It, it works because of that, I think. And then when you realize, as we just mentioned in the remake, that they change it so that the person that kills him, kills himself is the priest instead of the, the Mademoiselle character, right. which, which doesn't work at all. It's for, for other reasons, too, that you mentioned about it turning into some heroic uh, rescue in the remake. So let's keep with this one. But, yeah, the, the ending when she kills herself, you're left to wonder why and what has all this come to. And also, in a very cynical way, there's no way to write that ending otherwise. You can't. There's no way for right. the filmmakers to tell us what this woman sees on the, the you know, these this transcendent moment as she's being martyred. So, so this is the best way around it. But it also is an incredibly satisfying way to end the film. I, I consider Martyrs one of the, the few modern masterpieces. I think it's just one film that, uh, first, it defies a lot of explanations. I love how it starts as one thing, moves into another, and it's always about perception of what you, uh, who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth, what people think is heroic, what people think suffering is all about. Mm-hmm. I love the, the, the line that, uh, where she says, uh, we, uh, young women make the best martyrs. And you have this idea that they're not interested in, in victims. They want our, uh, this act of martyrdom bringing about tra- transcendence. But I love that it's saying that is basically talking about this little comment of how we turn suffering into something of adulation that keeps people in suffering. <laughs> Suffering's okay mm-hmm. as long as it's something beautific. And uh, the, when she's looking at the, the eyes of the photos, she's saying, look at the eyes, look at the eyes. There's yeah. this fetishizing of other people's suffering to allow you to be in some transcendent state. You get to learn something. And so I always loved how it's, it seems to be talking, to me at least, about how this society that is created here, which could mirror what we've got going, lives on making certain people feel that their suffering makes everything better for everybody else and that it's okay and that you're kind of conditioned to suffer and you're supposed to be in that position and you're supposed to stay in that spot. And they use abuse, which is just, you know, beyond the pale for most people as the sticking point on that. Okay, let's take that idea of suffering. Let's really pin that down. Let's go to the idea of uh, children being abused for years and being left in this spot. And I thought that that was very dark and very challenging. And so I love where this movie goes on a philosophical bend. And there is no way that you want to know what Mademoiselle hears. It's like Schrodinger's answer, (laughs) inside or outside of the box being opened. It's, I don't want to know. You figure it out on your own. You think whether it's a a living or dead thing. But I think uh, that the answer of what the afterlife is really all about is that despairing for this person. And uh, I, I just thought it was brilliant. I also think it's brilliant that Mademoiselle is, you know, it's this elderly woman, elegantly dressed, all these elderly people using the young in such a way to transcend uh, the, the being and to keep a an organization going that is really just trying to do good for everybody. Uh, uh, there's something just really insanely perverse and brilliant about that. It's a good point. Not only, like Hope said, can you really not write a, a message for her to whisper that would that would you know be worthy, but 
as an audience, no, we don't want to know. That's another point that would ruin it. It's like a ghost story. You don't you don't read what's on the middle message because right. it's not to you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Ex- exactly right. And uh, yeah, a very. Uh, when when we um, showed it here on Fright Club Live, we actually had people. We had little badges for them that made it through the entire movie. We called it a, a, a martyr's <laughs> merit badge because uh, that can be that can be a tough tough sledding. Uh, oh yes, for martyrs. But boy, get, making it to the end is certainly worthwhile. I agree. It's a it's a great one. Martyrs for uh, the original version. Stick with that one. Is our number two and essays number four, and we've already talked about essays number one, The Mist, a couple of spots down on our list. So we'll just go right to number one for us, the classic from 1968, Night of the Living Dead. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire. This is another one where you feel like you're watching a completely separate movie by the time you get to the end and where the genius of misdirection that happens in this movie Mm. because, well, because the end of the world is going to suck. It's just going to suck, (laughs) you know, and uh, and and he does so many things that are unexpected in this movie. And and Ben, of course, played by Dwayne Jones, who's brilliant, is for 1968. It was obviously very unusual for this to be our hero, the hero, uh, the the point of view that we are having. So it's not even just that he's a hero. He's really our point of view character. He's uh, who all at the by the end of the film. All hopes are pinned to this guy. Like, nobody else is going to make it if this guy isn't going to make it. This is all we've got going. And, oh, my God, I'm so glad that the military is finally here. And, of course, mm-hmm. you know, later in you know in the rest of his career, you would find out how unsafe Romero feels when the military <laughs> arrives. But we didn't know that yet when we, you know, when in 1968 when this film came out. So when the end happens and it's so... It's funny because you've gotten little bits and pieces in the news footage. You know, oh, they 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 go right up. They cut. You know, it's just little bits and pieces of of. Mm-hmm. It's not as noble. Uh, 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 the killing of these zombies is not the noble work that you might think it's going to be. It's really sort of hayseeds who aren't paying much attention. Uh, although he doesn't make it into bloodlust, he really doesn't. But in the end, it's just carelessness, and mm-hmm. and it's so heartbreaking. And demoralizing to watch Ben fall to carelessness, you know. And, and at the same time, though, the imagery that you get, especially set in 1968 in black and white, is so reminiscent of civil rights atrocities mm-hmm. that were going on at the time, which right. obviously he, it was intentional. So, oh, yeah, that final standoff is like a Klan ambush. Exactly. And and so, you know, and so, again, for the, for the purposes of the story, it works out really brilliantly. But to contextualize the film, it, the social anxiety of the time, it's absolutely genius. Yeah, I I completely agree. I I think it's interesting. We talked about the mist as well, that one of the things that's really disturbing about the the Ben uh, trajectory is there's another guy that's saying, we got to go in the basement. And the entire time Ben's saying, that's the worst idea. Where does Ben end up? In the basement. You know, he has to go down yeah. there, and then he finally comes up, and when he comes out of the basement, that's when he's killed. And so you get this, once again, this feeling of your siding with the side that perhaps it seems logical, 
but it may not be the best thing. You know, we're in disaster world. Anything can happen. But yeah, the end, uh, I, I have seen it on the big screen several times and I've gotten to see it with newer audiences over even in the last 10 years. And it always starts with giggles and people are restless in the seats because the timing isn't what it normally is. And then by the time they are in that farmhouse and uh, there's the one scene where the, I think they shoot one of the zombies in the face and it staggers backwards off the porch and it's the first time that you see all these zombies out in the lawn and that's when people start to go ooh and by the end you can hear a pin drop so the movie still has uh, an effectiveness a rawness I think it really holds up better than many of Romero's films it's just tight oh yeah especially the ending because when you think about you've got a posse of white people that end up shooting him in the head without even checking first to see if he's a zombie. You know, shoot first because he's a black man. Think about the social relevance of that. And even oh, yeah. now, today, it definitely, definitely holds up on a, on a social commentary scale, on a zombie movie scale, all, all the way around. And that's why it's another one that we've talked about many times for many different good reasons on the Fright Club podcast. And that's number one, our favorite horror movie ending. And uh, if you've got some some beefs, we would love to hear them. You can hit us up on Twitter. That's always the best way to keep the conversation going. You can find us at Mad Wolf. That is M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. And uh, on Facebook and Instagram, we're Mad Wolf Columbus. The main website is madwolf.com where you can find all sorts of fun stuff and our, our other podcast that we do once a week, The Screening Room, which uh, runs down reviews of all the new movies in theaters and on home video. You can find that one uh, wherever you listen to podcasts as well. So, S.A. Bradley, it has been a delight. Where can we find you on social media? Thanks so much for having me. So, Hellbent for Horror is my podcast. Uh, the podcast is here to remind you that you used to love horror and you secretly still do. You can find that podcast uh, anywhere that uh, you can download them. Basically, iTunes, Google Play, Player FM, Stitcher. Uh, we're also on Spotify and iHeartRadio. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter is probably the best place for me as well, at Hellbent Har. Uh, I have a Hellbent for Horror page on Facebook. There's also hellbentforhorror.com, which is my webpage as well. And uh, I love to get in touch with people and talk about horror as much as possible. So feel free to reach out to me. Well, it's been a blast counting down the two-part episodes of our favorite, our top 10 favorite horror movie endings. Great stuff. So much great insight, S.A. We appreciate that, and we hope uh, you can get a hold of us, both of us, and uh, tell us your thoughts, your favorite endings, maybe what you thought uh, was out of place, maybe ranked wrong or whatever. We'd love to keep the conversation going. And until then, I'm George Wolf. I'm Holt Madden. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Take us out, S.A. Stay frightful, my friends. Five, two, one, baby. One in five.